Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hi there, my name is Sam Green. I am a political sociologist, professor of Russian politics and director of the Russia Institute here at King's College London. And I'd like to begin, of course, by thanking the conveners of the AKC program for the opportunity to address you today, to share some thoughts about Russia, about protest, and at the end of the day, I suppose, about how we all exist in societies with what we might call an uneven distribution of power. Now, the, the theme of this year's AKC is leadership in troubled times. When I was first approached last summer about giving this lecture, there was a second part to that title. It was Voices in the Wilderness, colon, Leadership in, in Troubled Times. And I've been thinking about that really ever since uh, I got the invitation. And, and to me, at least, the idea of the wilderness and the voices in the wilderness right, is, is ambivalently evocative. It could go in, in, in one of two directions at the very least. Does it suggest a place of emptiness in, in which voices are unheard? Or does it suggest a place of cacophony, of an excess of voice? And that, in a sense, is, is the question that lies behind this lecture. Now, the title I've been given right, uh, and asked to speak to, and the title you've been given to, to listen to, is Protesting Putin. And that would indicate a focus, I think, first and foremost, on those who have chosen to speak out against the man who's ruled Russia for the past 21 years, who has concentrated in his hands control over really all aspects of governance, over the media, over the police and the courts, and, and so on. I, I might, I suppose, spend the next 40 minutes or so telling the stories of people like Alexei Navalny, the, the opposition leader who was first poisoned and then sentenced to jail when he returned home to Russia, or like Nikolai, uh, who helped organize his neighbors in Moscow to protest against illegal construction in his local park and was promptly branded a CIA plant. I might tell their stories, and, and I will tell their stories, but that's not where this story needs to begin. This story needs to begin with, with somebody named Vasily. It all starts with the president, Vasily said. I respect our president and his work. We have a great example of a president, I think, someone who we should look up to. And regardless of the difficulties, we, we overcome them one way or another. On the whole, everything is headed in the right direction. Now, no points, of course, for guessing who got Vasily's vote in Russia's most recent presidential election, held in 2018, two months after we interviewed the 41-year-old factory worker in St. Petersburg. And yet Vasily's outlook was not entirely rosy. The economy, he told us, was not working for ordinary people like him. And there was something about politics more broadly that was beginning to remind him of The Truman Show, if you remember that old movie, I suppose, with, with Jim Carrey. Vasily went on, he said, I believe, of course, that it's all honest. But at the same time, I don't know, just my intuition tells me that, that everything's all decided, really. Right now, our country reminds me everything that's happening, the elections, 
like we're in a really big TV show. Everything that happens, it's, it's all just for show. So why doesn't Vasily or any of the millions of other Russians unhappy with their economic prospects and, and vaguely unnerved by the tenor of politics, why don't they change the channel? Now, in 1978, the Czech playwright and, and dissident Václav Havel wondered why store managers in Prague placed signs in the window declaring workers of the world unite or hung portraits of, of the Czechoslovak leadership behind the till. Havel wrote, I think it can be safely assumed that the overwhelming majority of shopkeepers never think about the slogans they put in their windows, nor do they use them to express their real opinions. That poster was delivered to our greengrocer from the enterprise headquarters, along with the onions and the carrots. He put them all into the window simply because it has been done that way for years, because everyone does it, and because that is the way it has to be. If you were to refuse, there could be trouble. He could be reproached for not having the proper decoration in the window. Someone might even accuse him of disloyalty. He does it because these things must be done if one is to get along in life. It is one of the thousands of details that guarantee him a relatively tranquil life, in harmony with society, as they say. And you put quotation marks around that phrase, in harmony with society. Pavel wrote of the greengrocer, indeed of all of the subjects of Soviet rule, from a position of intimacy. Because he was one of them, he was capable of empathy. Because he chose to act differently, he was capable of judgment. Because he was not an academic, he was capable of, of passion. Now, a similar intimacy is difficult for people like me, for academics to achieve. Right? We eschew judgment, we fear passion, but we do seek empathy. For generations, if not longer, scholars of Russia, and of course not only of Russia, have sought to get into the heads of the people they study, or to understand their motivations and limitations, their fears and their aspirations. Not all of these attempts have ended well. After the end of World War II, the U.S. government did something almost unheard of before or since. It, it hired an anthropologist. Now, Margaret Mead was one of the most prominent scientists of, of her age. Her pathbreaking fieldwork in Samoa and Papua New Guinea in the 1920s led the Washington Post to declare her among the outstanding women of the modern world in 1943. For reference, Eleanor Roosevelt was one of only seven other people that the Washington Post could come up with to put on that list. Now, during the war, Mead had worked with the U.S. government to try to study German and Japanese culture, something she called, quote, the study of culture at a distance, given the, the obvious barriers to her usual ethnographic methods. And, and the idea was to develop a sense of their, again, quote, national character. This, Mead hoped, would, would help fine-tune wartime propaganda, right? but more importantly, it would aid in, in post-war reconciliation. The army, of course, saw value in this research for the purpose of psychological warfare. It was not surprising then right, that Meade's services would again be required as a new adversary emerged. Meade and her colleague Jeffrey Gorer began delving into the Russian quote-unquote national character all, and almost immediately hit upon a novel finding. Russians, they learned, tended to swaddle their newborn babies. This the researchers claimed accounted for much more than the tendency of Russians to gesture symmetrically or to have squarely shoulders. 
It also meant that, that Russians from the earliest hours of their existence learned to understand authority as an immutable constraint, entirely unyielding to resistance or supplication. The best word that I know to describe these findings is perhaps, unsurprisingly, a Russian word, which is chush, translates roughly to hogwash. Mead and, and Gore's theory, aside from ignoring the fact of ethnic diversity in the USSR, had no basis in psychological, anthropological, or social research. There was no systematic evidence to support it, nor could there be. It was, as they say in the US, good enough for government work, but it was pretty dismal social science. And it is of a kind with numerous other attempts in ensuing decades to diagnose Russian society as a whole, whether under the rubric of Adorno's quote, authoritarian personality, or Pyotr Stomka's Homo Sovieticus, Soviet man, or, or, or more recent work on quote-unquote collective trauma. Getting inside the minds of our research subjects means recognizing first and foremost that our research subjects are individuals. When Vladimir Putin came back into the presidency in 2012, having run the country as prime minister for four years while Dmitry Medvedev kept his chair warm, an increasing number of those individuals were forcing Putin to challenge his own notions about how politics works. For most of his first two terms in office, from 2000 to 2008, Putin's political credo had been something along the lines of, quote, don't excite the people. Political divisions, he believed, were artificial, created and exploited by self-interested elites. And if these sorts of divisions could be avoided and the passions of the people left unaroused, it should be possible to enjoy the support of all of the people all of the time. And for a while, this mostly worked. But by 2012, Putin faced a concerted anti-authoritarian opposition. To make matters worse, that opposition didn't seem to face any concerted resistance from a pro-Putin constituency. So to bridge this enthusiasm gap, Putin took a page from Western politics, using divisive issues to drive a wedge between the opposition and his core supporters. The campaigns that Russia saw in 2012, 2013 against gays and the LGBT community broadly, against Pussy Riot, against American adoptions, against migrants, all of these were designed to mobilize supporters and marginalize everybody else. And it worked. The support for the opposition stopped growing and Putin's approval ratings stabilized. But why did it work? Part of the answer is clear. It's the media. In the first of a series of surveys that Graham Robertson and I ran beginning in, in 2013, we saw clearly that a person's propensity to watch television, and all of the television in Russia by this time was controlled by the state one way or another, that this propensity to watch television was a powerful predictor of that person's opinions on Putin's wedge issues, right? i.e. On, on gay rights, on the role of religion in society, on attitudes towards Western values, immigrants, and so on. The real watershed among our respondents was not between people who watched a bit of TV and read a bit of online content, but between the majority who watch at least some TV and the minority who managed to watch none at all. In terms of their political opinions, it was almost as if they were living in different countries. And in a way, they were. But what determines who watches TV in Russia and who doesn't? 
As with voting and political behavior in general, the, the usual predictors inherited from comparative political science are, are pretty unhelpful. Russian voters don't easily situate themselves on a left-right spectrum, the way that British voters or American voters or French voters might. More broadly, economic prosperity is only weakly associated with political opinions, including support for the president. Other dichotomies, say urban-rural, young-old, blue-collar, white-collar, and so on, they don't line up with political divisions. So Graham and I were at a bit of a loss, and, and, and we decided to see what would happen if we could apply an idea that has recently gained traction in the study of American and European politics, namely personality, personality psychology. Now, not too long after Mead and Gore left the scene, psychologists began studying the factors that make up the personalities of individuals, not whole nations, right? In a, in a new way. By listening to how people talk about themselves and about their relationships with others, they were able to identify five basic personality traits, all of which everyone has to one degree or another. These quote-unquote big five personality factors are commonly referred to by their acronym OCEAN. Right? Openness, which captures the degree to which a person is or is not open to new ideas and experiences. Conscientiousness, which describes the degree of emphasis that a person places on order and on rule following. Extroversion, which is what it says on the tin. Agreeableness, which captures the, the value placed on maintaining friendly social relations. And neuroticism, which again is pretty much what it says on the tin. Now, with the partial exception of neuroticism, which can be acquired over the course of one's life, Psychologists agree that our personality factors are shaped by a combination of genetics and early childhood experience, and that they don't change much over time. And if you think about it, we all know people right, who are more gregarious than, than others, right, or who tend to be quieter. We know people who always want to find a new restaurant when we're allowed to go to restaurants, and, and, and others who always go back to the same haunts. We, we know people who avoid conflict at all costs, and others who, who never shy away from a good fight. Now, our personality factors have been shown to shape a lot of things, right? health and longevity, love life, career success, and so on. And politics is not an exception. Right? In most Western contexts, again, in North America and Western Europe, the relationship is fairly intuitive. People who score high on the openness scale tend to vote for progressive left-wing parties, while people who score high on the conscientiousness scale tend to vote for conservatives. Don't ask where Donald Trump and his voters fit into this. There's always outliers in, in any theory. In, in Russia, though, we found something totally different. Right? The strongest predictor of our respondents' opinions, whether on the wedge issues or on Vladimir Putin himself, was agreeableness. Now, psychologists understand people who are agreeable as being sensitive and tender-hearted. But the trait is more broadly associated with a desire to get along in your social surroundings, to avoid conflict. Agreeable people are always reading their surroundings, looking for clues about what others think and believe. This is not to say that they're conformists. Conformism is pragmatic. It's a response to risk. Agreeable people modulate their own thoughts and beliefs, not just to fit in, but to be friendly, to make other people's lives better. And that's a lot of work. Now, interacting with state TV, agreeableness is the single largest explanatory factor 
for why the Kremlin's wedge issues worked in 2012-2013. As Putin began to regain his popularity, his support came less from those citizens who turned against one another than from those who turned towards one another. These agreeable people are, if you will, Russia's greengrocers, seeking to live in harmony with society, and, maybe inadvertently, making Putin powerful in the process. Now, this is not to say, of course, that all of contemporary Russian politics is a story of sensitivity and tender-heartedness. Take, for example, a man named Igor Gribtsov. On March 7th, 2014, Mr. Gribtsov, who's a political science graduate from the Ural Mountain town of Lisnoy, which is near a slightly larger town called Kachkanar, which isn't too far from the major city of Yekaterinburg, crossed the Kerch Strait into Crimea and became what the media at the time was calling a little green man. There, he joined volunteers, including old army buddies and, and regular Russian troops, without insignia on their uniforms, hence the little green men, to effect the annexation of that peninsula. In December of that year, he returned home to Lisnoy, nursing a shrapnel wound from a tank battle in Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Now, to be honest, I have not administered a personality test to Mr. Gribsov, so perhaps I am wrong, and he is in fact a very agreeable person. At the very least, he seems to have been open to new experiences, and given that being a mercenary is illegal, perhaps not terribly conscientious. And so it's worth noting that Gripsov, like many of those who fought alongside him in Ukraine, and, and the many more who supported the war politically, materially, and morally, was not always a Putin supporter. What he was was a nationalist, somebody who believed that Russia had a right, and indeed an imperative, to extend its civilizational project beyond its borders, and to defend it. It's a mistake to say that Gribsov and his comrades threw their lot in with Putin. If anything, it was Putin who threw his lot in with them, finally applying the force of the Russian state to the demands that this constituency had been making for decades. That Gribsov and his comrades would approve of the annexation of the Crimea and the ensuing war in Donbass, together with the growing geopolitical confrontation with Europe and the United States, this should have surprised no one. But Gribsov and, and the hard nationalists in Russia are, are not sufficiently numerous to account for the massive popularity boost that Crimea and the Donbass gave to Putin in what looked like a classic rally around the flag effect. If you think back to what happened to George W. Bush's approval ratings after 9-11, or you think back to approval for Mrs. Thatcher after the, the Falklands-Malvinas war. Putin's approval ratings soared from the low 60s, low for an autocrat, into the upper 80s, and they stayed there for nearly five years. Again, we're left with the question of why. Now, in, in a tremendous feat of research design, Graham and I conducted Round two of our surveys in October 2013, five months before the annexation of Crimea, and round three in June 2014, three months after the annexation. No, we did not have ethical approval for territorial expansion. We did for the surveys. But what we did, however, have was a panel. This is a, a research design and survey research that allows us to interview the same people 
in both rounds, right? So we talked again to the same people both before and after the annexation of Crimea. As a result, we could see exactly who was changing their minds about Putin. The increasing support for the Russian president, however, was not the whole story, and maybe not even the most interesting part of the story. Yes, approval of Putin in our survey soared from 53% to 80%. But more intriguing, the number of people in our survey who said they were proud of Russia's leaders more than doubled, as did the number who said that they trusted Russia's leaders, and the number who said that Russia's leaders gave them hope for the future. Negative emotions like anger and contempt plummeted. Surprisingly, though, all of this positive emotion didn't make Russians feel more Russian. The number of respondents in our surveys who increased their sense of attachment to the Russian state, to Russian ethnicity, or to Russian orthodoxy remained mostly flat. Russians were not, it seems, becoming more nationalist. What Russians were feeling was, quite simply, better about everything. People, the same exact people, became more optimistic about the economy than they had been just a few months earlier, although, in fact, the economy was getting worse, so there was no objective reason to feel better about the economy. They told us that corruption, both the highest levels and the lowest levels, was less than it had been only seven months earlier, despite the lack of any evidence to that effect. Most strikingly, respondents in June 2014 looked back on the 1990s, that period of economic degradation, in fact, chaos and hardship for millions, tens of millions of Russians. They looked back on this period of the 90s more fondly than they had in October 2013. Again, we're talking about the same exact people, reevaluating their sense of the present, the future, and even the past. It's tempting to blame it all, as usual, on television. From the beginning of the Euromaidan revolution in Ukraine, Russian television was all Ukraine all the time. Daily news broadcasts grew from 30 minutes to an hour. The Sunday shows from one hour to two. Spokojny Nochi Malishi, the classic bedtime puppet show for children, was moved to a different channel entirely to make room for more news, proving that nothing is sacred. As the Russian media researcher uh, Arina Borodina noted, the evening news broadcasts Vestia and Vremia together showed 70 to 100 minutes of Ukraine-related news every night during the peak of the conflict. In 2014, Russians reportedly watched 30% more television news than they had the year before. But that's too simple a story. What an increasing number of people in, in Russia called the zombie box, right, didn't change its story on corruption, on the economy, or on the 1990s. It tried to make people proud, television did, but it always tries to make people proud. Something else, something else was going on. And that something else, I think, and, and Graham and I think, was, was best described by Emil Durkheim at the turn of the 20th century. Studying Aboriginal rituals, Durkheim, one of the founders of modern sociology, noticed that sacredness was not purely an individual phenomenon. It's only by engaging with other people in the same extraordinary activity, by moving together, dancing or singing or acting in concert, 
that people break out of the mundane and discover the sublime. This euphoria, which results from synchronizing and harmonizing our actions and reactions with those of others, the way that we might in a dance hall or a church pew or a football stand, is what Durkheim called collective effervescence. And like other forms of euphoria, collective effervescence makes people feel better about themselves, increasing their self-esteem, their optimism, and their general emotional valence in, in their lives. Collective effervescence, according both to Durkheim and to a century of sociologists who followed, has three other important effects, all of which are recognizable in the Russian case. First, it makes people look to each other and for each other more. Writing of episodes of mass excitement like the medieval crusades or the French Revolution, Durkheim reminds us that there are, quote, periods in history when, under the influence of some great collective shock, social interactions have become much more frequent and active. Men look for each other and assemble together more than ever. As the movement moves from the ordinary to the extraordinary, from the mundane to the sublime, we only know how to act by looking around and observing others. And as we feel moved in the moment, we find the legitimation of our own actions only in the company of others who are acting the same way, doing the same odd, extraordinary thing together with us. This company in the modern era does not need to involve physical presence. Mediation has been shown to work just as well. And so watching television, which media scholars generally understand to be a collective process in any case, can suffice. But we also found in our surveys that not only did Russians watch more political news on television, they began more and more to find politics an important topic of conversation with their friends, their relatives, and their colleagues. Politics shifted from being something private and profane to being something public and pure. As a result, and this is the second effect, collective effervescence leads to the creation of what we might call an affective identity. While religion may well be linked with ethnicity or nation or other supposedly primordial identity constructs, the real connection in Durkheim's telling is forged not out of physical or cultural sameness, but out of synchronicity, out of moving together in the same way, in the same place, and in the same time. Participants develop both an affinity with others and a sense of who they are, not simply on the basis of what they have done together with others, but by virtue of how that togetherness made them, made all of them feel. Thus in Russia, while we don't see an increase in attachment to formally defined political, ethnic, or religious communities, we do see an increase in attachment to an emotionally defined community, to a community of pride, of hope, and of trust. And lastly, these two things, this importance of community and this affective identity, combine to create what social psychologists refer to as emotion rules. As social animals, we all know that certain situations require certain emotional responses. Thus, we know we're supposed to be sad at funerals and happy at weddings. Most of the time, adhering to these emotion rules takes little effort. We're pushed by the valence of the moment, including by our own physiological processes, to emote as we are supposed to. 
when that fails, social example and social conditioning step in. And when even those fail, our inability to feel the way we know we're supposed to feel creates a sense of guilt or even inadequacy, punishment, if you will, for rule breaking. People who've been through a moment of collective effervescence are thus prone to re-experience those ecstatic emotions whenever a reminder of the moment is provided. And such reminders are ritualistically provided on Russian television to this day. Putin's post-Crimea rally then, lasting as it did through five years of war and economic distress, was not as straightforward as a simple transaction in which Putin handed his citizens a peninsula and they rewarded him with support. The process was more social than political. The people who were most likely to increase their support for Putin did so as a result of a three-step process. First, they watched more political coverage on television. Second, they talked about politics more with their friends, their relatives, and their social circles. And third, that coverage and those conversations improved their sense of emotional well-being. And it was the effervescent combination of those three things, of watching, of talking, and of feeling, that produced Putin's stratospheric support. This is not an exercise in victim blaming. I am not here transposing the argument on Hitler's willing executioners to Russia. Russia, for one thing, is not Nazi Germany or Stalin Soviet Union or even Niazov Turkmenistan. Whatever Putin's ideology may be, it is not encompassing and transformative. Russia is not totalitarian. Our purpose, my purpose, is, is not to blame Russians for their own predicament. We do not, after all, enjoy a degree of intimacy with our research subjects sufficient to allow judgment. And as academics, that is anyway anathema. Rather, we seek to recognize and to understand the role that ordinary citizens play in the construction of power. To say that citizens need to be brought back into our understanding of authoritarianism is not to suggest that top-down power does not matter. Clearly, the fact that television plays an important role in this story, and again, that all Russian television is controlled by the state, is important, as is the fact that the electoral field is similarly controlled by the Kremlin. Nor do I want to diminish the very real authoritarianism of contemporary Russia. While violence is not ubiquitous, it is present. And it is much easier to keep in perspective when one's perspective is that of a dispassionate academic. The Kremlin has significant resources at its disposal to coerce would-be opponents into acquiescence, as we have seen in recent weeks and months. But contemporary political science, we argue, overemphasizes top-down explanations of authoritarianism. Research focuses overwhelmingly on the ability of dictators to design, co-opt, and manipulate institutions, to manage competition, and to mitigate threats. And that's a problem for at least two reasons. For one thing, it relies on a tremendous degree of skill on the part of those dictators. And there's little reason to believe that dictators are, in fact, so much smarter than the rest of us. But perhaps more troublingly, such an analytical perspective conspires with dictators themselves to rob citizens of agency. In sticking with the old assumption that authoritarianism is primarily about demobilization, we assume, as dictators themselves might, that left to their own devices, citizens would tear down the system. 
but that is not what we observe. This is also not what Havel observed in the 1970s in Czechoslovakia. Returning to Prague, he reminds us that the decision of that greengrocer, quote, to live in social harmony is not purely an individual phenomenon. It does not begin and end with that greengrocer alone. Havel wrote, quote, the greengrocer declares his loyalty in the only way the regime is capable of hearing. That is, by accepting the prescribed ritual, by accepting appearances as reality, by accepting the given rules of the game. In so doing, however, he has himself become a player in the game, thus making it possible for the game to go on, for it to exist in the first place. This is what Graham Robertson and I meant when we wrote about co-construction. So we've seen people support Putin not because he wants them to or forces them to, although he does want them to, but because they find it socially useful to do so. The social consensus around the inevitability and the righteousness of Putin's rule emerges from ordinary Russians' relationships with one another and from the role that this consensus plays in facilitating and cementing those relationships. The facts of authoritarianism delegitimize difference, making alternative thoughts and interpretations politically dangerous, but also socially fraught. As such, the nature of the regime does matter. Were power structured differently, were it easier to countenance competing ideologies or political projects, it would be easier for people of different persuasions to feel socially secure. The key point here is that authoritarian power flows through those social settings and relies on them for strength. And as a result, Putin's power is both stronger and weaker than we might have imagined. It's stronger because he does not need an omnipresent system of control and coercion to create coherence. Society does that for him. But it's weaker because society creates this power for its own purposes, not for his. When circumstances shift, when Russians look around themselves and see different understandings, different emotions, the social tides that have buoyed Putin all these years will ebb, and a new consensus will emerge. Now that takes us, as I promised, back to Nikolai. Now, in the park where he grew up and where he was raising his young son, someone had fenced off a parcel of land and was beginning to build something. Parkgoers noticed, and they also noticed that the usual documentation that gets posted at construction sites was missing. So they went to the local administration to investigate, and, and they were stonewalled. No information was, was provided. They appealed to their city council members, who were elected ostensibly to represent residents' interests, and again, they got nowhere. Frustrated, they put up a tent camp, placing themselves between the park and the bulldozers. And they set up social media pages to get the word out. Eventually, they formed alliances with residents fighting similar encroachments on green spaces around the country. An initial police raid failed to break up the protest, and in fact made things worse for the authorities. Nikolai said, a lot of people started off neutral. But after two weeks of sitting in the park, of talking through the night, well, people who hadn't thought through for themselves, you know, what's going on with politics? What are my convictions? Who's, my, who's closest to my opinions? After two weeks of talking, people moved towards this kind of liberal democratic position. 
at the beginning, everyone more or less you know, didn't like the mayor, right? But that was disconnected. I mean, not politically motivated. It was just, you know, he's the boss. Well, we can identify it. He's a jerk. Right? But over the course of, of those two weeks, those who didn't have a view, well, they got one about democracy, about elections, about how things are the way they are, because Putin has been in power for 20 years, and it just built up. It became clear what we needed to do. What Nikolai and his neighbors decided they needed to do was to join nationwide marches that summer, calling for an end to corruption, and, in essence, for an end to Putin's power. They were joined in those marches, led, spearheaded by Alexei Navalny, now, now in jail. They were joined in those marches by tens of thousands, in some cases hundreds of thousands of others, who had been on a similar journey. Mobilization is, at its core, a learning process. So just as Nikolai and his neighbors learned that the impending destruction of their local park was part of a chain of cause and effect that stretched all the way from their park up to the Kremlin, so did Russians concerned about myriad other local problems learn that lesson. The construction of highways through old-growth forests, the storage of toxic waste in the Arctic, punitive taxes on small business owners, austerity-focused reforms to pensions, health care, and education, and so on. But cause and effect is only part of the learning process involved in mobilization. The other part is the discovery of community. Recently, for another project, I interviewed two men who will call Oleg and Vadim. They had taken part in protests that you may have also seen in the news over the last six months against Alexander Lukashenko, another long-serving autocrat in neighboring Belarus, one of the few autocrats to have been in office longer than Putin. Of his experience at these protests, Oleg said it was a feeling of drive and solidarity, a kind of spiritual lift given how massive it all was and how positive. You walk through the city and you see people with whom you want to live together. Similarly, Vadim spoke in emotional terms, again focusing on pride. Pride in my people, he said, at the fact that it turned out there were people around me. It was an admiration for people who were expressing their best feelings and civic participation and some kind of basic solidarity, bringing water to people in the summer when it was hot, I felt admiration, pride in the people. What Oleg and Vadim were describing is the same kind of collective effervescence that I was talking about earlier. That same phenomenon of moving together and the extraordinary sense of commonality caused by that synchronicity, of connection caused by that synchronicity. That same phenomenon gives rise both to support for autocratic leaders like Putin and Lukashenko and to the movements of courage and solidarity that arise to challenge them. Let me say that again. The social construction of authoritarianism and anti-authoritarianism operates through the same social pathways. They are built from the same human instincts and the same human imperatives. To close, then, allow me to leave you with one final thought. In this day and age, when our own politics seems so unsettled, and indeed when Russianists like me are unusually and uncomfortably in demand, it is worth asking 
what all of this might mean for us. It is easy to overemphasize the differences between autocracies and democracies. They are real, to be sure, but as we've seen, practices and habits of mind flow remarkably easily between them. Perhaps this isn't surprising. Both in the end are populated by human beings. And so what we have learned about political behavior in Russia should give us pause at home as well. The thought then is this. When we worry about the breakdown of democracy in any other country, in the UK, in the US, anywhere, it is too easy and too simple to pin all of the blame on anti-democratic politicians who have somehow led people astray. Once again, it robs citizens of agency. If the dysfunction of politics, whether Russia's politics or our own, comes from the bottom, and not only from the top, it needs to be addressed from the bottom too. If we want to get back to a more civil political discussion, one more to do with the push and pull of policy, of redistribution of left and right, of all the things that we associate with normal democratic politics, and less captured by tribal identities and seemingly civilizational cleavages, then we need to lower the costs of being politically different. We need to make it possible for people on all sides to diverge from the assumptions of their social circles and still feel included and secure. And we need to check whether our own human instincts are leading us into the wilderness or out. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.